Now, Pastor Mike mentioned that uh, today we are finishing up a spiritual growth emphasis that we've called 40 Days of Prayer. And today, what I want to do is I want to talk to you about how God answers prayer. And right at the beginning, if you've printed your notes, I want for you to look at the scripture at the top of your outline. There's this great promise that you'll see here. It says in 1 John, now, we have the confidence that we, as followers of Jesus, this is the confidence that we have before him, that whenever we ask anything according to his will, what does it say? It says God hears us. Isn't that awesome? Isn't that an incredible promise that God will always hear you? God is never deaf to what you're calling on him for. He's always listening. By the way, this is a promise that is repeated over and over and over in the scripture. In fact, uh, this week I was reading in my normal quiet time right out of uh, Isaiah chapter 65. And there was this great promise to the people of Israel. And it says this, God says, I was ready to respond, but no one asked for help. I was ready to be found, but no one was looking for me. I said, here I am, here I am to a nation that did not call on my name. And I thought to myself, what a tragic thing that, that is. That God is eager and he is listening and ready. But there was a nation that wasn't calling on him. And I said, Lord, let that not be us. Lord, that isn't us. Let us call on you because you're so ready to respond to every need that we have in our prayers. In fact, Jesus put it this way in Matthew's gospel. He said, I want you to ask. And by the way, the tense of this verb, ask, it means that you continually keep asking. He says, I want you to be asking. He says, ask and it will be given to you. Keep asking. Seek or keep seeking and you will find. Knock or keep knocking and it will be opened to you. Now, truth is, sometimes we don't like the answer. Sometimes we ignore the answer. But God always answers. In fact, no is an answer. Is that right? There are a lot of examples in the Bible where God says no. Moses, God says no. Daniel, God says no. There's lots of great men and women that God said no to. Job, God said no. Jonah, God said no. I mean, friends, you and me, if we just start looking through the scripture, you're gonna see there are lots of places that God says no. Elijah, God says no. My goodness, God even left Jesus hanging on the cross. <laughs> Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He said these words, Eloi, Eloi, lame sabachthani. God, why? It's okay to ask Why? But he still left Jesus in a quandary. Why have you forsaken me? See, no can be an answer and it can leave us wondering. You ever think about that? Grow up is an answer. It's an answer. So the question that I have today that we thought, boy, we don't want to finish this series without dealing with is, what do you do when God says no? Because the question really is this. If God is truly a loving God, if God is truly good, and if God has the power to control everything, why is my request denied? Why is it, for example, that when we pray for sick people, sometimes God says yes, but sometimes God says no. Some of them are going to get well, and some of them are going to die. I've prayed for people, and I've seen them get well. I've prayed for people, and I've seen them die. So what's the difference? 
Why do some people get relief from the pain they're going through and others never do? Now, guys, those are challenging questions. Why? Now, I've got some points that I just want to make to you here uh, this morning. And, uh, and, and I've got some that I'm going to have you write down. But before I get into even the points I'm going to have you write down, I thought I'd state the obvious. Just some things right off the top that are worth saying. So you're not going to write these down, but I want you just to think about these for just a minute when we wonder, why does God say no? Here's the first obvious thing. When two people are praying for the opposite thing, obviously God can't say yes to both people. You guys understand that. For example, you have two football fans that are, pray, that are uh, praying for opposing teams. Somebody's going to be disappointed. Now, uh, I don't know that God even cares that much about football, but you get my point. How should God choose? Or for example, right now we're coming up to an election, and boy, I encourage everybody to study the candidates. I encourage everybody to go out and vote. It is a civic responsibility before God that we let our voice be heard. So you go vote. But probably you're praying for a particular candidate to win. And probably you actually believe that God is for the candidate that you're for. But I'm going to tell you this. Some people on that election day are going to be disappointed. Now you've got Christians on both sides of the aisle praying for one or the other. Somebody's going to be disappointed. Or another example. What if somebody came up to you and said, I'm praying that God forces you to marry me. You want God to answer that prayer yes? No, somebody's going to be disappointed. Now, those are obvious things. But you just think about when you pray for sick people, for example. We mentioned that. Just wonder about that. Just think about this. If everybody that you and I prayed for never died, for example... What would that mean for our planet? If everybody, if every great man and woman of faith never actually died, what would that mean? Because you know and I know that as it is right now in the laws of the universe that God has set in motion, people aren't meant to live on the planet forever as they are. We're all terminal. In fact, you hear somebody say, well, that guy has a terminal illness. Well, we all are terminal in a sense. God does say no. So again, what I want to do today is, I want to tackle really two things here. I want to talk to you first about the possible reasons, more than what we've just said, about why God says no, and then we'll knock those out. And then I want to talk to you about what you do when God says no. But let's start with the reasons. Why does God sometimes say no? If you just, again, grab your notes and write these things down. Here's the first reason I'll give you. Number one, God says no when he has a bigger perspective. Why? Well, it's because you and I have a limited perspective, and God sees the wider view. Now, you just think about that. Friend, God can see into the future. You can't. In other words, God can see how the dominoes fall over. He sees how one thing leads to the next thing. God can see around the curve, and you can't. In fact, it was that same prophet Isaiah that I read from a few moments ago that said, you'll read it in chapter 46, he said, remember that I am God and there is no one like me. From the beginning I told you what would happen in the end. A long time ago I told you things that have not yet happened. You see, and God can see for every prayer that is answered yes, he knows that it starts a chain reaction. See, God says if I say yes to that prayer, I can see the net effect that that's going to have 10 years down the road. In fact, if you've ever been to a high school reunion, 
you should thank God that he didn't answer some of your prayers. It's like, you know, back in high school, that hunk of hunk of burning love that you were praying would fall in love with you. You get to your high school reunion 10 years later and you're thanking God that he didn't answer your prayers. Why? Because the scripture says, look at Hebrews chapter four, that nothing in all creation is hidden from who? From God. God sees everything. Everything is naked and exposed before his eyes. It's why that great theologian, Garth Brooks, he wrote the song, Thank God for Unanswered Prayer. You should thank God that he doesn't say yes to everything that you've asked for because he's got a bigger perspective. Now, here's the second thing that he's got. God's got a better plan, if you'd write that down. And there are times that God says no to what you're asking for simply because his plan is better than yours. You can't see it, but God says, you're gonna have to trust me. In fact, there are times that God says, I intend to answer your prayer, but I'm not gonna answer it quite the way you want me to. It's gonna be a little different. Now, you know what our problem is? Our problem is, is that we wanna know the plan. We want God to tell us everything about what's coming. We wanna know what God knows. We wanna know the plan. In fact, there are all these conspiracy theories that are going around these days. Have you noticed that? They are especially popular among Christians telling us why things are being done in the world. And, and guys, Christians buy into this stuff more than any other people group that I know of. Statistically, Christians get into this and, and they want to know. And the reason why Christians are so drawn to this is because Christians, particularly, they want to know the plan. There is a sense of control, and Christians have this sense, and I don't know if it's because we're, re we're religious people or if it's because we feel that we have inside knowledge because we're in with God, but I have noticed in conspiracy theory circles that Christians are drawn to websites and news that, that talk about this stuff. And it's really simply because we want to have that sense of control, that sense of plan. But I'm saying to you today that God doesn't let us know the plan. In fact, God says... If you knew the plan, you wouldn't trust the person. So God says, I'm gonna keep you in the dark on the plan so that you'll trust me. In fact, God says, if you're gonna relate to me, you've gotta trust me. He says, hey, you may never know what it is that I'm doing. In fact, Hebrews chapter 11 puts it this way when it talks about how we relate to God. It says, you can never please God without trust, without faith. You've got to depend on him, why? Because it says, it goes on, anyone who wants to come to God must believe that there is a God and that he rewards those who are sincerely looking for him. God says, I want you to look to me. I don't want you to look to the plan. Now guys, you and I have got to get this. Why? Because God says, human being, you need to understand your thoughts are not my thoughts. He says, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord in Isaiah 55. He says, as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts are higher than your thoughts. God says, my thoughts aren't just a little bit different than your thoughts. God, God says, my thoughts are so vastly different from yours, as high as the heavens Go above the earth. Now, there's a word I want you to circle in this scripture that's a key to our understanding. It's the word ways. In your notes, if you just circle the word ways, because you notice, it's ways. It's not way. What does that mean? 
It means that God doesn't just have one way of dealing with things. God has ways of dealing with things. Unlike you, God's options are unlimited. God has lots of alternatives. He's never forced just to answer your prayer in one way. You want God to answer your prayer in a specific way because it's the only way that you see. But God says, I've got multiple ways to get done what I want to get done. God has multiple plans and he uses any number of them to accomplish his purpose. Let me go back to the election that's coming up right now. Some of you are praying for a specific person and you're saying it must be God's will that this person gets elected because it's the only way God's gonna get done what he wants to get done. If not, you say our country's gonna go to hell. Friends, I'm telling you, God is gonna accomplish his purpose no matter who gets elected in this election. Do you understand that? Why? Because he doesn't just have a way. He has ways. God channels the hearts of kings And yes, God uses every candidate and any candidate. Now, I'm not saying that you shouldn't vote. I'm not saying that you shouldn't seek God about that vote. But that has more to do with your character. And that has more to do with your responsibility than it does a fear that God's not going to get done what God wants to get done. He will. And he will use any person. And he will use any government to be able to do it. Now, what should that do for the Christian? What should that point do for followers of Christ? Listen to me. That should increase your faith. And it should increase my faith. That God always has a plan. But it's not the plan I trust. It's the person I trust. I don't seek a plan. I seek a person. This is why, frankly, I don't care about all the conspiracies or all the things that people say might be happening. Why? Because they're well in God's hands. I trust the person and I yield to him. My goodness, friend, listen to me. If we spent half the time in prayer seeking the person that we do studying the plans of what might be and the conspiracies and things that we hear, if we spent half that time on our knees Seeking a person, we would be a godly people. A people that are salt and light to others that don't know him. I pray that you do that. Now, by the way, it's here on this point. I'm taking a little longer because I feel like there's something I just got to deal with here. When you and I are going through a hard time, don't assume that it's the devil. Don't assume that, well, you know, God would never allow me to go through this because that may not be true. In fact, if you just read through the scripture, you'll see that there, the Bible is filled with heroes of faith, men and women that God let suffer. In fact, you'll see that God actually commissioned suffering. God allowed suffering. He willed suffering. You'd say, boy, it's never God's will that we would go through a pandemic. And I'd say to you, really? How do you know that that's true? Because I look to scripture and I see everything that God has said Everything that God has done, and I see that he actually commissions suffering at times. In fact, you just look at the people of Israel, for example. Just stop and think about this. The Bible says that the people of Israel are God's special and chosen people, and yet you've never seen a people that have gone through more suffering than they have. You look at all the heroes of faith. You look at Daniel in the lion's den. You look at David living in caves, running for his life. You look at Esther who says, if I die, I die. 
Again, you look at the people of Israel that were slaves and suffering under the Egyptians for 400 years. 400 years! How long has America been a nation? 200 and some years? What has it been now? 250, 270 years? The people of Israel, in a blip of their history, suffered cruelty and slavery without God ever giving them a word as to why. Generations born and died in suffering. And yet the Bible says that they are God's special people, his chosen people. They suffered. You look at every apostle that was martyred for their faith at every turn. In fact, Hebrews says of the great people of faith that have lived, it says, notice in verse 36 of chapter 11, that they were chained. They were put in prison. They were stoned. They were sawed in two. They were put to death by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destituted, persecuted, and mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains and in caves and in holes in the ground. These were all commended for their what? For their trust. For their faith. Yet not one of them received what had been promised. Why? Underline this next phrase. Because it says God had planned something better. Isn't that interesting? God planned something better. And sometimes you'll go through a fiery trial and you'll say, God, don't let me go through this trial. And God says, you're gonna go through it because I have a better plan. And God says, but you've gotta trust me. Guys, you and I see through a keyhole. God says, you've gotta trust me. I see the big picture of eternity. And I know why you're going through this. You know, I often think about uh, uh, Handel's Messiah, that incredible work. If you remember, I was just reading about it the other day and how he composed it. Handel's Messiah is over 200 pages long. Now, can you imagine if as Handel was writing the Messiah, Handel's wife came in to the kitchen table and saw one piece of his composing work. What if she saw one page of that on the kitchen table and she looked at her husband and said, boy, <laughs> Look at this. You're a lousy composer. This doesn't make any sense. (laughs) You understand, she's looking at one page of a 200-page development that is the work of his life. Guys, we see through a keyhole. And sometimes we see things out of context that only God can have. And God's saying, you're going to have to trust me because I'm working on something incredible. But you've got to trust me. Just think about St. Paul, for example, if I can give you another example. Look what God says about him. God asks Ananias to pray for Paul, and Ananias questions it because Paul has been persecuting Christians. Now, Paul was God's chosen vessel, but look what it says. The Lord said to Ananias, go, I have chosen Saul for an important work. He must tell about me to those who are not Jews, to kings and to the people of Israel. But look what it says in verse 16. I will show him how must, he must, what? Suffer for my name's sake. Because God looks at you and God looks at me and says, look, I don't live for your comfort. You live for my glory. And you've got to trust me that I've got a bigger perspective. And you've got to trust me that I've got a better plan. And then number three, if you just write this down, why does God say no? 
God says no when he has a greater purpose. Friends, listen. God has never made anything without a purpose. And God says, I'm not going to even let you, and I'm not going to even let your prayers get in the way of my purpose. Psalm 57.2 puts prayer in a great place when it says, I cry out to God most high, to God who fulfills his purpose for me. Now that you can trust. And God isn't obligated to explain why he does what he does. Whenever I think about this, I think of Deuteronomy 29, for example, which says, here are some things that God has kept secret, but there are some things he's let us know. And it's God that gets to decide which things he keeps secret and which things he lets us know. But we trust the person. We don't trust the plan. And we say, God, I know. I know that there's a reason you're doing what you're doing and I'm gonna believe you in spite of all these things. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter four. See, this is what is distinctive about the believer. Look at what it says. This is a great passage. It says, we now, as believers, have this light shining in our hearts. But we ourselves are like fragile clay jars containing this great treasure. And look what it says in verse eight. We are pressed on every side by troubles, but we are not crushed. We are perplexed, but we are not driven to despair. We are hunted down, but we are never abandoned by God. We get knocked down, but we are not destroyed. Stop right there for just a moment. Just look at me for just a minute. What Paul is speaking here to is what I call the buoyancy of the believer. What is buoyancy? Buoyancy is the ability to bounce back up. Buoyancy is that thing that a rubber ball has when you, when you soak it under the water, but then you let the ball go and it'll always pop back up. The Bible says that the Christian has this thing living within them that gives them buoyancy so that they don't sink. It's what we call Christian joy. It says that I can go through difficulty and trial, but it's okay. I'm still going to float above the water because I have this thing within me that keeps me upright. And Paul says in verse 13, notice, he says, but we continue to preach because we have the same kind of faith that the psalmist had when he said, I believed in God, so I spoke. We know that to God who raised the Lord Jesus God will also raise us up with Jesus and present us to himself together with you. Even if I die, Paul says, I have the hope of the resurrection. In verse 15, it says, as God's grace reaches more and more people, there will be great thanksgiving and God will receive more and more glory. Stop right there. Look at me for just a minute. Friend, as we've gone through this pandemic, I have been so proud of Christians that have not complained and have not spoken out in anger and have not lashed out at people but have said God I trust you that you have a plan and instead they've praised God and they've given glory to God and they've said God we know that you have a plan and in doing so they've set an example for unbelievers friend the way that you are responding to suffering in your life, I need to ask you, is it different than how unbelieving people have responded? Is there something distinctive about the way that you've lived your life, your disposition that has been different, that you've been able to handle the difficulty with joy? 
with love, with care for others, not argumentative, not lashing out, but in service and love toward others. You've served people and you've cared for people. Come on, has that been you? Because that's what makes the Christian life distinctive. It's what makes our disposition so different than anyone else's. Do you hear me? He says, Paul says, verse 16, that is why we never give up. Though our bodies are dying, our spirits are being renewed every day. Verse 17, for our present troubles are small and won't last very long, yet they produce for us a glory that vastly outweighs them and that will last forever. So we don't look at the troubles that we can see now. Rather, what do we do? We fix our gaze on things that cannot be seen. For the things we see now will soon be gone. But the things we cannot see will last forever. Oh, man. Friend, I hope that's you. Are you trusting in the plan and looking for all the answers to the plan? Or do you just simply trust the person and you can say, Lord, it's okay. Whatever happens, I believe you, I trust you. Because you don't just have a way, you have ways. You don't just have a plan, you have plans. And you're going to work them all out. So, what do you do and what do I do when God says no? What should our disposition be? Very quickly, I'm going to go through these. This is what's distinctive about the life of a believer. Number one, write this down. We trust that God always leads us in love. In fact, if I could just say this to you, never judge God in light of your circumstances. Never judge God in light of your circumstances, but always judge your circumstances in the light of God's character. Always judge your circumstances in the light of who he is. In other words, I never go through a difficult time and say, well, God must be evil and God must be unloving and, and boy, you know, forget God because God doesn't know what he's doing. No, I look at my hard circumstances and I say, God, because you're good and because you're loving, there must be a good and loving reason for this and I choose to trust you in spite of it. Now, I'm telling you, Christian, that's what makes faith, faith. That's what makes believing, believing. That God, you're not gonna do anything unloving in my life. So God, I say, what are you trying to teach me through this? <laughs> Psalm 25 says this, all the ways of the Lord are loving and faithful for those who keep the commands of his covenant. In other words, for those people who depend on him, who believe that his ways are the best ways. Now, sometimes we wanna doubt that and Satan wants to shoot darts at you. And Satan wants to say, God doesn't love you. God doesn't care about you. If God cared about you, he'd give you exactly what you want. But I just want to encourage you. You need to doubt your doubts. Don't doubt God. Doubt your doubts. And reject the lie and say, Satan, I rebuke you in the name of Jesus. I rebuke that lie. It's from the pit of hell. I depend on God. Satan's a liar. Listen, God loves you. God loves you so much, he's willing to say no to you. Can you imagine a parent that said yes to every request that was made by their kid? I'm gonna tell you right now, my youngest son, I've got three kids, my youngest son, Aiden, he's six years old, and every day of the week, he asks me for Cold Stone ice cream. And most days, I say, no way. <laughs> 
Can you imagine how unloving it would be if every day I fed him ice cream? Can you imagine how he'd develop? Not just physically, but how he'd develop emotionally that he only ever heard yes. No, because I love him. I teach him to, to flex some emotional muscles and learn how to hear no. In fact, sometimes I say no on purpose. I'd like to go get Cold Stone ice cream, but I know it's better for him that I'd say no because he needs to learn how to handle that. And so, so Aiden knows I love him and we need to turn to God and say, God, I know you're good. I know you're loving and I trust you. Now here's the second thing that the Christian does. The Christian prays what Jesus prayed when God said no. The Christian prays what Jesus prayed when facing the cross. You say, well, what did he pray? I don't remember that. Well, if you remember when Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane, and, and Gethsemane is an amazing thing. In fact, here's a picture of it you can see here. In fact, I, I can't wait till we're going to Israel again as a church. In fact, I just want to remind you that we go to Israel every year as a church. The pandemic has slowed this down, but we are going to get back to it. Here's a picture of Gethsemane. In fact, on our Israel trips, it's really cool because we actually go to Gethsemane and we have a time of prayer. It's awesome. You're going to love that, but... Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane. Gethsemane is a word that means where they press the olives because it's a garden of olives. It's a garden of olive trees. And so he went to the place where olives were pressed and Jesus was pressed and he was in agony in the garden because he knows that he's about to get crushed. He knows that he's facing the cross. And it says in Mark's gospel that he went a little farther and it says he fell to the ground in emotional exhaustion. And he prayed, if it were possible, Father, Abba, he says, let this awful hour pass me by. Abba, Father, he cries out, everything is possible for you. So please take this cup of suffering away from me. He says, God, I don't want this. And again, if you just look at me for just a minute, it's okay for you to say, God, I don't want this. It's okay for you to pray, God, I don't want this thing. God, I don't want this cancer. God, I don't want this surgery. God, I don't want this divorce. God, I don't want this death. God, I don't want this thing to happen, whatever. And yet, look at how Jesus goes on, though. He says, yet, I want your will to be done, not mine. In other words, God, because I trust you, I live for your purpose. God, I want your perspective. God, I want your will. That's what the Christian prays. We trust God that he's good and loving. And we say, God, because you're good and loving, I trust you more than I trust my plan. And that leads to the last thing, and then we're going to be done. If you just write this down. You expect that God is going to give you the grace to handle whatever the answer is. You just expect God to give you that strength and that answer. His power. In fact, as you're writing down that point, I just, you know, we've talked a lot today about the Apostle Paul as a great example. Somebody who God specifically commissioned for suffering. He said, I will show him. I've chosen him, but I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. You know, the Apostle Paul, he said it this way as he lived out that calling. Notice this. He says, you know, three different times I begged the Lord to take it away. He's talking about this pain he went through, what he called a thorn in his flesh. And he says, three different times I've prayed that God would take it away, but each time God answered back, my grace is all you need. My power works best in weakness. So now I'm glad to boast about my weakness so that the power of Christ can work through me. See what happens in Paul's life? 
Paul actually becomes comfortable with the idea that it's not going to go his way. Paul actually becomes comfortable with the idea that there is a purpose that I suffer. There's a reason. So that God's power could be perfected in me through my weakness. And then he says in verse 10, that's why now I take pleasure in my weakness and in the insults and in the hardships and in the persecutions and the troubles that I suffer for Christ. Why? Because he says, when I'm weak, then I'm strong. Friends, that is the nobility of the Christian disposition. For every person watching this that would call themselves a believer, that is the uniqueness of your life. I ask you to grab hold of it. I challenge you to humble yourself before God and say, God, I'm no longer going to be angry. I'm no longer going to blame you and get angry at others. But I'm going to trust you and believe you. I hope you're able to do that. And if you're watching this and you're an unbeliever, I would just appeal to you that the Christian disposition, the true Christian, it's a unique thing because it's the ability to have joy in the midst of pain. And that may be something you've not been able to have, but you say, that's attractive. I'd like to know about that. I'd encourage you to investigate Christ because for those who really know him, they're able to do that. And guys, it is an awesome thing. Internal composure when there's chaos going on out here, that is awesome. I want to lead us in a prayer. And I hope you'll just pray with me. Let's just pray together. God, I know that I'm not going to get the answer yes to every one of my prayers. And yet, I trust you. You're a good God. You're a loving God. God, you have a bigger perspective. God, you have a better plan. In fact, you don't just have a plan. You've got plans. God, you've got a greater purpose. And you know, you might be listening to this prayer and you're saying, I, if you don't trust him, you're saying, I don't trust God. I just say to you, you don't trust God because you don't know God. Because if you knew him, you'd be able to trust him. I want to invite you to trust him and take that first step today. Let's just pray this prayer. Dear God, I want to get to know you. I want to open my life to you. I want to learn to trust you and love you. God, forgive me of my sins, my rebellion toward you, the, the way that I've gone wrong, and come into my life. Thank you for letting your son Jesus suffer for me and pay for all my sins. Start me today on the journey of trust. I commit myself to you, God. I give myself to you. Help me to live this out. Help me to tell my friends about it. In Jesus' precious name I pray, amen, amen. God bless you.